Okay, so uh, rethinking conflict. We're going to kind of cover a couple of different things. First, kind of what are the reasons for conflict? You almost don't really need to talk about that because it's just so obvious. Basically, anything and everything is a reason for conflict, right? Uh, but uh, talk about some common things that we see in Scripture and, and experience in our own lives. Uh, and then we're going to talk about how to think about conflict uh, that we experience because... Uh, uh, so often when we experience conflict, it comes as a shock, as a surprise, and it shouldn't. And so that uh, that can be helped as we think rightly about it. Yeah, that's right. So let, let's begin here with what are some common reasons for conflict. The first common reason that we can talk about, and these are in no particular order, uh, is doctrinal differences. Uh, you know that uh, in this day and age, there are uh, thousands of different denominations, depending on how you slice and dice uh, denominations. Uh, there's uh, churches that have different convictions, theologically different ways of understanding scripture. And uh, there are times when that uh, difference of opinion leads believers to separate from each other because they can't uh, work through their differences. Uh, this is nothing new, even though it's uh, you know 2,000 years after the start of the church, it's uh, spread in terms of the divisions in churches. It all began all the way at the very beginning of the church. In Acts 15, which you have listed there in the notes, there was a debate over whether or not Gentiles who were being saved should be circumcised. If, uh, if that was something that was necessary for them to be considered true Christians. And uh, not only circumcision, but uh, following the dietary laws. And basically, should Gentiles become Jews in order to become Christians? <laughs> that was the, the debate at hand. And so it says there, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning the issue. So there arose this theological debate, and the, the determination was, all right, Paul and Barnabas, you go over to Jerusalem, the kind of the headquarters of the church at that time, and get this figured out. You know, what is the right doctrine? What is the truth that we should all adhere to? Uh, oh, that there was some way that we could do that today. <laughs> and uh, obviously the Roman Catholic Church uh, does that one way, but uh, that's a departure from from scripture. But but this goes all the way back to the beginning there. Uh, Titus 3.9 says, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So he identifies certain things that he says are not worth arguing about. Uh, that even genuine believers can have disagreements but in the midst of those disagreements, you shouldn't argue and you shouldn't separate over those issues. And it takes, of course, some discernment and thought as to what are the issues that we should argue about, that, not in a sinful way, but that we should discuss and debate and try and arrive at a common understanding. And what are the issues that we can just say, let's agree to disagree, right? We can't do that over everything. We can't do that over the deity of Christ. We can't do that over the resurrection. Well, let's just agree to disagree that Jesus you know, rose from the dead. No, no, no. There are truths that Scripture explicitly states this is essential. Uh, and then there's things that Scripture does not say, eh, this isn't all that important. Scripture doesn't say that about anything, 
But as we think about uh, the impact of various truths and, and ideas, uh, there are differences that we can live amongst one another. I mean, for example, when we do membership interviews, uh, we tell people, and even in the membership class, you know, we, we have a 26-page or so doctrinal statement, uh, and we know that everybody coming into the church may not agree with every jot and tittle of the doctrinal statement. And that's okay. Uh, there are some things, we have a shorter doctrinal statement that you have to believe this in order to be a member of our church. But there's other things in our doctrinal statement that you can not believe and still be a member. Things like um, the doctrine of creation, right? We are utterly convinced that Genesis 1 to 11 is historically accurate, a, a six-day creation, a global flood. Uh, but if someone were to come and say, you know what, I'm just not sure, I'm you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe the, the age of the earth is older and so on and so forth. You know, we would want to have a conversation about that. We would want to understand what's driving that interpretation. But ultimately, that would not be a, a reason for not accepting someone as a member. And I could, we could go on and talk about a lot of different issues like that. So doctrinal differences are a common source of conflict. And it takes a lot of humility to consider what what is worth separating over, what's worth our, uh, discussing and debating, and what's worth accepting our differences. Another common reason for conflict is competition over limited resources. Uh, one of the earliest examples of that is in Genesis 13, when uh, Abraham, or Abram at the time, and Lot... Uh, their households were growing, their possessions were increasing, and they were kind of overlapping with each other. And so there was a disagreement over um, uh, the, the space that, uh, that they were in. It says, Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So these two families are growing and growing and they're starting to bump up against each other. Uh, some of us have multiple kids and some of us who have multiple kids have multiple kids living in one space, <laughs> right, in one room. There was a time when we had three boys in one room that was a 10 by 10 square basically and uh basically a bunk bed and a bunk with a, a, a desk underneath. Uh, our oldest son, at least at that time, was like super particular about neatness and having everything in order. And the other two, <laughs> they were not. You know, you walk in, crunch, 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 because Legos are just all over the ground, except for where Noah's bed was. Then from there, there was like, it was like, God separating the light from the darkness in, in Egypt. You know, it's like complete mess and then perfect neatness. Well, you can imagine that there was some conflict over a period of time uh, on various issues of space. Hey, that's my space. Or, hey, that's my toy. Anyway, those things are super common. You know, in the church, we can have debates over the use of space. Uh, who's reserving what rooms? You know, who's doing what in the building? Uh, these things are super common uh, in our lives today. Uh, or Acts 6.1 is another example. Now, at this time, the disciples were increasing in number, 
And a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the church was caring for the widows, but there was an unevenness in how that food was being distributed. And so naturally, there was a debate. There was complaining about that, that lack of fairness and equality. And so uh, that had to be dealt with. There's another example there from Genesis 26, but, but you get the idea. Competition over limited resources. An- another kind of broad uh, reason for conflict is differences in values, goals, gifts, priorities, expectations, interests, or opinions. Those could all be broken out individually, uh, but differences in, in all of those areas. And here's one that uh, is, again, common not just in Scripture, but in our lives today. 1 Corinthians 12 says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And he goes on from there. He, he says at the end of it, But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Uh, It's very possible that in the context of a church, uh, because there are some prominent people, if you will, those who are more uh, up front, those who are more well-known, and then those who are more in the background, those who are uh, less um, just in the consciousness of the church at large, that there can be a a difference of of treatment of engaging with people. Uh, For example, as a pastor, uh, pastors can give attention to the the louder voices and neglect those in the church who are not as vocal about the struggles and the challenges that they're facing. Uh, Or as the church seeks, you know, kind of like with the um, Acts 6 situation, as the church is seeking to minister to people, it ministers to those who have the more prominent and obvious needs and not to those who are less prominent. And some of that may have to do with gifting or priorities. What's important? You know, do we, wanna, do we want to prioritize the more uh, visible aspects of ministry uh, because we want more people to see and, and we want uh, 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 you know, interest to, to grow as opposed to doing things that are behind the scenes that nobody would notice? Um, you know, differences of opinions on how things should be done or what the church should be doing, whose say gets the loudest voice, whose opinion matters most. Uh, There's all kinds of differences that can take place in there. Uh, An example on the next page is 1 Corinthians 1. When uh, Paul writes, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas and I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So here the difference of opinion is, who is my favorite teacher? Who is my favorite preacher? And so, you know, in a situation where they didn't have the kind of structure that we would have, like a, a senior pastor, an associate pastor, or whatever, people might be saying, hey, I, I want Paul to be preaching more regularly, or I want Peter to be the one who's teaching us, or, you know, I want um, 
uh, Apollos, because uh, he's so knowledgeable in the scriptures. And so there could be divisions over their favorite leaders and their favorite teachers. And Paul's saying, no, that's, that's the wrong way to think about these things. So differences of values, goals, priorities, opinions, and so on. And then another source of conflict we could identify is just plain old sinful attitudes and desires that lead to sinful words and, and uh, actions. Uh, regardless of whatever differences might exist between two people, just the way that they relate to each other is sinful, that they don't think about each other in a godly way, they have sinful attitudes, uh, and they have sinful desires. James 4, which we'll spend a lot more time on uh, in a couple weeks, says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now again, we'll spend a lot more time on this passage in a couple weeks. But the the simple point here is that there's a a sinful attitude that we can have, a a root desire uh, for whatever it is that we want. And because we want it so strongly, we want it so passionately, we're willing to sin in order to get it. Or we're willing to sin if we don't get it. And so whatever our desire is, and, uh, and it can be anything. It could be good things. It could be uh, evil things. It could be things that God has said that this is a good thing. Uh, it could be otherwise. But it's, it's the strength of our desire that we're willing to sin in order to get it or sin if we don't get it that produces conflict. Or 1 Corinthians 6 Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? He says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. So these are situations where uh, we are wronged by someone. Someone does something. Maybe they break a possession that they had borrowed from us. Or they don't return money that they had told us they would return. You know, they had asked for a loan and said, I'll pay you back, I'll pay you back. But they don't pay you back. Uh, or they borrowed your car and got in an accident and returned it, you know, wobbly wheeled and everything. They're like, oh, sorry. <laughs> you know, whatever it might be. And, and so there's this compulsion that we have to say, wait a minute, you've, you've wronged me. And, uh, and in seeking to have that restoration and restitution on a personal level, that doesn't work. Uh, hey, I, I thought you were a Christian. Why are you asking me to, to pay this back? You know, it wasn't my fault. I didn't do that on purpose. Uh, that doesn't work. So, all right, I'm going to take you to court. I'm going to take you to small claims court or whatever because you owe me. And Paul says, uh-uh. You don't take each other to court. He says, why not rather be wronged? So the fundamental disposition that Paul advocates is a willingness to be unjustly treated. The wrong attitude is an unwillingness to be unjustly treated, and that then produces conflict when we're not willing to be wronged. When we demand our rights, we demand that uh, the right thing be done. We'll talk a lot more about that in in the future. So those are just some categories of things that 
produce conflict. I'm sure we could all come up with examples and maybe even other categories as well. Well, let's think about how we should think about conflict. Several points on this. First of all, realize that conflicts are inevitable, therefore expect them. Conflicts are inedible, inevitable, so expect them. Uh, when you think about the varieties of conflicts, the innumerable circumstances in which conflicts arise, there is no way to avoid conflicts. Right? You can, uh, you can wrap yourself in bubble wrap and uh, walk around you know, just trying not to hurt anybody or, or offend anybody. And uh, just the fact that you do that is going to be offensive to some people. <laughs> uh, there is no way to avoid uh, conflicts. And so we shouldn't be surprised. You know, but again, we are. Something happens, you know, maybe we're friends with someone or we're serving with someone in the church or we have someone in the small group that we're growing in friendship with. And something happens that just you know, rubs us the wrong way. Uh, they say something to us that's offensive or... You know, so, something happens and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, where did that come from? What happened? Uh, I thought we were friends. I thought we were good. You know, I thought we trusted each other. Uh, we're, we're so surprised. And in some ways, that's not entirely inappropriate to think that way. But at the same time, we should also realize, man, we live in a sinkers world. I'm a sinner. They're a sinner. Of course there's conflict. Don't desire it, but it's going to happen. As it says on the third bullet point there, expecting conflicts doesn't mean we should assume the worst. Like, of course we're in a conflict because look at who they are. But rather, love assumes the best, but because of the curse of sin, even when two people have legitimate motives, opinions, and expectations, conflicts will take place because of competing desires, as well as miscommunication. I mean, just miscommunication in and of itself, right? Not hearing each other accurately can produce conflict. I you know, for those of you who are married, I don't know if that happens to you. It certainly happens to my wife and I. You know, you just hear something wrong or, you, you know, you, you hear, you think they said one thing, but they really said something else. And you just, you know, auto, automatically jump into a conflict instead of uh, clarifying the situation. You know, I think about Paul and Barnabas in this respect in terms of uh, they both had good desires when um, John Mark wanted to jump back into the ministry with them. Uh, they both had the desire to serve the Lord, uh, to uh, be faithful in their calling to minister and proclaim the gospel. Uh, but they also had some different desires which were not in and of themselves wrong. Uh, Paul wanted, uh, uh, he wanted to have a, a ministry partner that was faithful, that was trustworthy, that had proven himself in the work. Barnabas wanted to uh, give John Mark a second chance. Uh, apparently John Mark had repented or you know, asked forgiveness, whatever he actually said, and Barnabas felt comfortable enough to say, hey, let's, let's give him another chance. Uh, and Paul said, no, 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 he's, he's failed, he, he left us in the past, I don't want to be in that situation again, so let's move on. And so they had a conflict over uh, legitimate differences in opinions and expectations. 
So the mere existence of a conflict, because they are inevitable, the mere existence of a conflict should not anger or frustrate us. Rather, it should motivate us to take action. Now, I've seen enough in my own life and in counseling ministry just to see that sometimes when a, a person feels that that little bit of heat, uh, even warmth of a conflict, like, oh, there's something there. <laughs> it's like, I don't want anything to do with that. And they run away. And they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to talk about it. Um, and that's not a good thing. We need to uh, take action uh, to deal with conflict because it will happen. If, if we always run away when... When there's conflict of any kind, we're going to find ourselves in complete isolation from others. So realize that conflicts are inevitable, therefore expect them. Also realize that conflicts are the result of sin, therefore resolve them. Conflicts are the result of sin, therefore resolve them. Now in saying that, we have to acknowledge that not all disagreements are conflicts. Right, you and I can disagree about what who makes the best chicken burger or the hamburger or you know what our preferred brand of coffee is. We can have a disagreement about those things, but those don't have to be conflicts. They can become conflicts, especially if you don't like Starbucks. But they don't have to be conflicts. I mean, only if you make it a conflict, is it? No, just uh, not all disagreements are conflicts, and thus not all disagreements are inherently sinful. Right? We can disagree about all kinds of things without venturing into sin. However. Remember that we defined last week conflict as uh, impaired thinking and relationships. And so if our thinking and relationships are impaired, God is not being honored in our thoughts and in our relationships. So we're in a a situation where the curse of sin is, is at work. And so we, want, we should want to deal with that. Now, there might be situations where you would say, I didn't do anything wrong. Uh, I didn't sin. I wasn't trying to sin. I was just minding my own business. I was even trying to do something good. And how in the world did I end up in this conflict? What, what do I have to repent of? What do I have to say... I'm sorry for how can I respond to this conflict? Well, that might be the case, right? It's not common, but I grant that that is sometimes the case. But even uh, with our best of intentions, with uh, you know us just minding our own business, uh, it's possible that there are ways we could have handled the situation differently. I'll give you an example. So when we were um, much younger in our marriage, gosh, what is this, back in 2007 or so, I remember one night Rich and I were uh, laying in bed talking, and uh, you know, over the years, it took me way more years to figure this out, but talking late at night is no bueno for us. Uh, you know, just, it's not going to go well. But I hadn't learned that yet. So we were talking late one night, and uh, Rachel was telling about a situation that she was wrestling with and you know we, it was it was fine it was good and I'm thinking hey you know I, I want to encourage my wife I want to give her some good counsel and and minister to her so I gave her you know a nugget of wisdom <laughs> and um, 
it didn't go well. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what in the world just happened? Uh, I, you know, I was listening. I was, I was, you know, trying to love her and and, and say something right. And I realized uh, for the you know one of uh, a thousand times that um, I did not uh, use the best tact that I could have used. That maybe in that moment, what would have been better for me as a husband would have been just to listen and say, "I'm sorry, honey. That sounds really hard." Or let's pray about that, or you know something like that. But what am I thinking? I am so tired. I want to go to sleep. Maybe if I just give her an answer, <laughs> we, can, we can be done. So even though what I said was not sinful, I could have handled the situation differently and perhaps hopefully it would have gone better. Right. So we always have to be willing to acknowledge, okay, I didn't overtly sin. I wasn't sinfully motivated, but I could have handled the situation differently. And so we can at least acknowledge that in some situations. Uh, sin is any lack of conformity to, to Christ. And uh, Jesus himself was in constant conflicts, but uh, he handled them perfectly. And so since we are not yet perfectly like Christ, we have to acknowledge that there may, uh, may have been a way that we could have acted differently Sometimes our role in a conflict is passive, that we didn't do something that we should have done, right? Like, like Adam, who was, uh, to some degree, near Eve while the serpent was talking to her, and, and uh, she took of the fruit, she was deceived, and then she gave it to her husband, who was with her, Scripture says. And so sometimes the problem is that we didn't do something. So instead of saying, I didn't do anything, we should say, yeah, you're right, I didn't do anything. I should have been more proactive. Uh, I should have been more vocal in response. I should have said something, you know, whatever the situation might call for. So wherever sin is recognized in thought, word, action, or inaction, it must be repented of. Right? So all conflicts are the result of sin. Uh, usually sin on both parties. Sometimes sin on the part of one. Sometimes it's a sin of commission. Sometimes it's a sin of omission. And so because it's a, a sinful dynamic, whether or not we have overtly sinned, uh, we want to, as much as possible, deal with that. Now, there's one scenario that often comes up is, well, what if like, there is total innocence on my part? Like, I am at work, and um, I, you know, I'm a believer, and I have unbelieving coworkers who are just antagonistic toward me. And so they just mistreat me. They speak evil against me. They, you know, I can't work with them. What, you know, in what way have I been uh, contributed to that in a simple way? Well, there are situations like that where, and that's kind of like the situation with Christ, where we didn't contribute, uh, where there is no sin on, on our part. And so I want to acknowledge that that's a reality uh, and, and that's really different in terms of a conflict than what we're talking about in the class in terms of more of the personal conflicts that we have with one another. But I just want to note that to say there are those kinds of situations where, yeah, we had no responsibility, uh, we had no uh, contribution 
uh, to that conflict that, that we need to confess. All right. Another thing that we need to realize in thinking about conflict is not only that conflicts are inevitable, that conflicts are the result of sin, but also conflicts are opportunities. Conflicts are opportunities. And this is huge. If we can put this in our minds, if you can memorize these three opportunities, this will be so helpful to you in handling conflicts. So we'll repeat this over the course of time throughout the class uh, uh, over the next you know, 12 weeks or so. Uh, but this is really, really important. So I would encourage you uh, to just put this into your mind. Memorize it. Uh, write it out somewhere. Uh, post it uh, on your refrigerator or something because this is really critical in, in thinking about conflict. The first opportunity that conflict provides is the conflict to know trust and glorify God. To know God, to trust God, and to glorify God. Every situation where we are at odds with another person is an opportunity to know God, to trust God, and to glorify God. You could shorten that just to glorify God. Psalm 9, 9 and 10 says, The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know your name will put their trust in in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So you see the both both concepts of knowing and trusting in that particular passage. Now he talks about those who are oppressed, um, those who are in trouble. And so when you are in a situation where you're predominantly on the receiving end of sin with someone, uh, sin from someone, uh, you can uh, know and trust that the Lord is your stronghold. Uh, the Lord is your refuge. The Lord is your strength. Uh, he is not going to forsake you uh, if you seek Him. He is with you uh, through it all. And so conflicts, because of how much pain they can produce in our souls, uh, give us that opportunity to look to the Lord, uh, to know that He is our shield and our fortress and our deliverer as it David says in Psalm 18, uh, and to trust that he is at work in the situation. Or Psalm 55, verse 23 says, In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Whatever your contribution might be in a particular conflict, you can trust in the Lord that no matter what happens, even if injustice wins the day, even if someone or people have a wrong opinion about you, they, they cultivate a wrong perception of who you are, God can be trusted in the midst of that. Psalm 140, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. God is a God of justice, and even though it's true that in this sin-cursed world is it's full of injustice uh, God will one day bring justice to bear on all who do wrong and so even if you are treated unjustly even if you are misunderstood if you're falsely accused if you're misrepresented whatever is unjust that is coming at you you can trust that the Lord will set all things right in the final day that's huge. 
But also there's the action part, the glorify God part. And John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if we are trusting in the Father, if we're trusting in Christ in the midst of our situation, and we're saying, Father, I love you, Christ, I love you, then we will take action to honor him in what he calls us to do. You know, one of the common conflicts that we see in Scripture that provides principles for us is the conflict that believers had in those early years of uh, should Christians eat meat that is sacrificed to idols? Is that a good thing to do? Pagans who were coming into the church being newly saved, uh, they understood all of the religious implications of meat that was sacrificed to idols. And so some of them said, I, I, I can't eat that meat because of all of what that signifies. And others were saying, yeah, but there's no such thing as the, those were sacrificed to false gods, right? We don't have to worry about that. That's not going to stain us because we've been washed by the blood of Christ. And so there was a division over whether or not those things should be eaten. And so the principle, I mean, there's a lot of principles that Paul gives and how those things should be dealt with. But one of the ultimate principles that Paul gives is in 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says, So then, whether you eat or drink... Whatever you do, however you handle this situation, make sure that you glorify God. Do all things, he says, to the glory of God. And that's kind of the overarching principle which then filters down specifically into different courses of action uh, in, in situations of conflict. So conflicts are is an opportunity to glorify God. Conflicts, secondly, are opportunities to become like Christ. It's an opportunity to become like Christ. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, what's interesting there is Ephesians chapter 5, believe it or not, comes right after Ephesians chapter 4. And at the end of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, uh, you know, have nothing to do with maliciousness, slander, anger, wrath. Put these things away from you and instead put on a heart of compassion, Kindness, love, forgiveness, forgive others as you have been forgiven. That's what he says in the last couple of verses of Ephesians 4. And so then Ephesians 5 starts with, therefore, be imitators of God. In other words, the, in, in the midst of, of a situation where we might be tempted to respond in anger, where we might have a heart of malice towards someone, where we're in a position that where we can either choose to forgive or not forgive someone who has sinned against us, Paul says, be an imitator of God, who himself is a God of patience and loving kindness and forgiveness and mercy and sacrifice, uh, as he says there in verse 1 or 2. So we have an opportunity in the midst of conflict to imitate Christ, to sacrifice, to die to ourselves as a sacrifice to God. Or think about Ephesians 2, which of course we've spent a lot of time in recent months studying. 
Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So as we're in the midst of a situation where we're at odds with someone, we have differences of opinion, where we're in conflict with them, we should be uh, looking out to their interests. We should be not doing anything out of selfishness. Uh, We should be looking to the interests of others in the same way that Christ uh, looked out for our interests even above his own there in Philippians. So we reflect, we imitate Christ in that way. Or 1 Peter 2, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Some of you may have taken the Gospel for Life class that I've taught, and that this verse is like the, the theme verse where we look at the sufferings of Christ, how he walked through uh, from the garden to crucifixion and through into the, the resurrection, and we look at what did he do and how can we imitate him. And a number of scriptures point us to the sufferings of Christ as a model and example of how we then are to live in our lives in the face of suffering. And it says there, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So this opportunity to become like Christ takes us back to the first opportunity to to know trust and glorify God. We become like Christ when when we do that. So conflicts are an opportunity to glorify God. Conflicts are an opportunity to become like Christ. You see there in the notes, conflicts remind us of our need for Christ. Uh, They show us how desperately we need Him because we are weak and easily tempted. Uh, Conflicts help us to see blind spots in our attitudes and habits. Psalm 119, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes, he says. So, you know, we could be thinking that we're doing pretty well in life. You know, that we're growing in Christ, we're being sanctified, we're loving people really well, we're, we're good forgivers. And then all of a sudden, somebody does something that is just beyond the pale. <laughs> like, the, it exceeds the sanctification we thought we had, and something comes out of us that we're like, where did that come from? Right, and that's an opportunity to recognize. Oh, I guess I'm not perfected yet. <laughs> I guess there's still room for growth. Uh, so conflict help us helps us see our blind spots and attitudes and actions, and then conflicts help us practice self denial again in imitating Christ. Again, conflicts are opportunities to glorify God to become like Christ. The third opportunity that conflicts give us is the opportunity to minister to others. To minister to others. Both minister to those who are in conflict with us, as well as to minister to those who are observing the conflict. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. 
So sometimes we can be in the middle of a conflict with someone and we can see pretty clearly whether or not we have a log in our eye. We can see the, the speck in their eye and we can see, man, this person is really struggling. They're, uh, they're not responding right. Like they're not even interested in glorifying God. They're just living in the flesh right now. How we respond to that can minister to them or can exacerbate their sinful response. You know, the, the gentleness, the kindness, the patience with which we respond can minister to them. And as they're caught in the trap of their sin, which is what Galatians 6.1 is talking about, caught in trespass, it's being caught in a trap. Uh, we can help someone, even if we're on the receiving end of their lashing out, uh, help them get loose and free from uh, their sin. Uh, or Matthew 7 there. Uh, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Do you not look at the speck? Sorry, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And we're going to have a whole session on taking the log out of your own eye. So that's, that's the emphasis here, and we'll get to that. But for now, I just want to point out, there is the place where you take the speck out of your brother's eye. There does come a time where that is a necessary and appropriate thing to do, to say, hey, brother, sister, um, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what you know. I think you need to be uh, considering about uh, you, yourself. And that's after we've taken the log out of our own eye. So it's not like I just deal with myself and I ignore them. No, no you want to minister to them the grace of Christ. Think, think about 1 Peter 3 in this context. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in, in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So, you probably know that that verse is the theme verse for apologetics. Most every apologetic ministry uses that verse to mean that we need to be able to give answers to skeptics uh, on the validity and the rationality and the veracity of, of Christianity. But if you really think about the context and what Peter is talking about, uh, he's talking about being on the receiving end of wickedness, uh, persecution, attacks, simply because you're a Christian. He says, for the sake of righteousness. And what will happen, he he supposes, is if you're responding uh, graciously, patiently, uh, gently, uh, you're not retaliating, uh, you're uh, showing love to those who are attacking you, What may happen is someone, maybe not the person who's attacking you, but someone else might say, why are you responding that way? People don't normally pray for the person who's attacking them. Why why are you so kind to that coworker or to that 
to your boss when they're so mean to you? The response in that moment is, well, let me give you seven proofs for the resurrection. (laughs) Right? That's apologetics. No, the response is, oh, let me tell you about the hope that I have in Christ. Let me tell you the gospel that is the, the basis for my response. In that way, you minister to those who are observing your righteous behavior in a situation of, of persecution or attack. Right? So th- there are times when maybe kids, you know, kids in the home observe what's going on. And you as a, um, as a parent have the opportunity to explain to your kids why you're able to respond in a godly way, whether it's to an ungodly spouse or in a difficult situation that you know, you're going through at work, but you're talking about in the home. Uh, you can be a witness or you can, be a, you can minister to friends that know about challenges in your life. And they're wondering how are you, how are you responding the way you are. Uh, I guess another angle of that would be to say, know that you are being watched, know that you are being observed, and consider how your response in a conflict uh, looks to those who are watching from the outside. In Romans chapter twelve, uh, Paul says. In fact, let me just turn there real quick. I don't want to misquote it. Um, in Romans 12, verse 17, he says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And then it's translated here, Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Okay? So someone is attacking you in an evil way and the temptation is to respond with evil. But Paul says, no, 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 don't do that. (laughs) Don't respond with evil toward evil. Instead, he says, again, as it's translated, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Uh, The word respect literally means to think beforehand, to think in advance, to plan. And uh, the word uh, right, uh, respect what is right, uh, literally means uh, beautiful or good. And so what he seems to be saying there is, okay, don't respond with evil when you're attacked. Instead, think about what would be beautiful or good in the eyes of others who would observe the situation. Think about that. If, if other people saw me respond this way, would they think that that was a good response? A, a beautiful thing? Or would they respond, oh yeah, well that's what everybody does. Everybody yells back. Everybody cusses up their boss. Uh, everybody's complaining and griping. Or would they say, man, that person is so joyful, they're so thankful, they're so kind, they bless their enemies. Um, think about that. Think about what would be a good response as other people observe Uh, your actions. All right. So those are the three opportunities. The opportunity to glorify God, to grow in Christ, and to minister to others. 
again, I just want to encourage you to memorize those, have those just be at the forefront of your mind, uh, where you can spit them out at any moment, so that when you're in the midst of a conflict, you're thinking, okay, this is an opportunity to glorify God, to grow in Christ, and to, to minister to others. That completely transforms how we respond in a moment of conflict. All right, the next point there is with such significant opportunities comes responsibility. And with responsibility comes stewardship. So here's another way to, to think about conflict is that conflicts are a stewardship. It's like God is saying... Okay, here, here's this conflict. Now, what are you going to do with it? How, how are you going to use it? Are you, are you going to use it to glorify me, to, to grow in Christ and uh, to minister to the others? Or are you going to use it as an excuse to live in the flesh? And so it's a stewardship. And so stewards view conflicts not as intrusions, but as an opportunity to worship. Right, so sometimes we're living our life, we're just going about our day, a conflict comes up, and you're thinking, man, this is not convenient right now. <laughs> I mean, how many times have you been walking out the door and a conflict erupts, maybe with a spouse, maybe with a child? You get a phone call, and you're like, I need to go. Like, I, <laughs> I'm going to be late to where I'm going. And, uh, and we think of it as an intrusion. I think as a steward, we need to think of it as an opportunity to, to worship. Because God, in His infinite wisdom that is mysterious beyond our comprehension, He knows what your schedule is. He knows what's going on in your life. So He is purposeful in bringing conflicts to you at the right time when, it, when you have the greatest opportunity uh, to worship and glorify Him. Right? Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then he goes on to say, never pay back evil for evil, respect what is right in the sight of men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's just some of the summary or some of the key statements that in the, the very context of you know, having worked through the gospel in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. And then he says, as a result of what God has done for you in Christ, live a life of sacrificial worship. And one of the primary ways, he says, you can do that, or one of the primary contexts, is when you are sinned against. When you are sinned against, you have the opportunity uh, to worship God. And so you need to steward that well. Uh, Secondly, their stewards view conflicts not in terms of personal offenses, but in terms of divine priorities. It's easy for us and natural for us to, when someone sins against us, that we get offended. I can't believe they said that to me. (laughs) I can't believe they did that to me. Right? Or as a parent, don't they know that I'm their mom, that I'm their dad? How could they possibly disobey me for the thousandth time? Uh, We get personally offended. But when we're thinking about conflicts as a stewardship, we should recognize, wait a minute, there's a higher higher level uh, way of thinking about this situation. 
Psalm 69.9 says, Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Jesus quotes that in the New Testament when he clears out the temple. And so we know that when Jesus cleared out the temple, it wasn't that he was personally offended. Like, how could these people possibly do this to me? He was concerned with the glory of God in that situation, with how the people were rebelling against the Lord, how they were misusing the temple, the place of worship, uh, converting it into a, a place of profit, uh, and, and uh, sinful profit at that. And so we need to learn not to be personally offended, but to recognize what are the priorities that, that uh, God is concerned about here. You know, we, uh, we know that we should have the attitude when we sin to say, according to Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned, right? Against the Lord. But when someone sins against us, we say to them, against me and me only have you sinned, <laughs> right? Well, what if we change that and we said, man, that was really hurtful what they did to me, but they've really just sinned against the Lord, <clears throat> I am concerned about our relationship, but I'm more concerned about their relationship to the Lord and how this situation is reflecting their, uh, their ungodliness and their um, distance from God. And so, again, when we view uh, conflicts as, an, as a stewardship, we're thinking about God's priorities, and, and that can certainly include the other person's uh, spiritual condition. Next, stewards trust in God's sovereign purposes. We trust in God's sovereign purposes. Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So when something difficult happens, when we're offended, when we're hurt, when we're sinned against in some grievous way, we have to trust that God is in control of this. This This didn't take God by surprise. He's not shocked by this. He has in his, again, his infinite, mysterious wisdom, he has ordained this to take place. And therefore, he has a purpose for it. And that purpose uh, will ultimately be good. It will work together for good. Stewards know that God is for them. So not only is God sovereign, but he is sovereign in a way that his sovereignty is is manifested as being for us, for our benefit, for our good. Romans 8.31, just a couple verses later, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? So even if someone is against us, we can say that more significant than that, God is for us. And so their being against us is... Uh, underneath the umbrella of God being for us. God God is working out His good purposes in our life. And then finally, their stewards don't focus on results, they focus on faithfulness. So over the course of this class, over the next three uh, three months or so, we're going to talk about process. How does the Scripture give us wisdom to work through a conflict. And uh, what often happens is we do what we think God has called us to do, and and then it doesn't work, quote-unquote. 
And then we say, well, what's the point of doing this if it's not going to work? If I can't guarantee the outcome, if I can't force that person to fall on their knees in repentance before me uh, and bring our relationship together. Well, the, the, the focus should not be on the results. The focus should be on faithfulness. How can I be faithful to the Lord in what he has called me to do uh, on my side of the conflict? Matthew 25, 21, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. The slaves there who invested and who took what the master gave to them to steward, they had no control over how much their investment produced. They just faithfully took the the amount of money, the, the resources that the master had given, and the Lord brought about growth uh, according to his own will. And so they just returned back to the master and said, well, here's what your resources have produced. The only one that was chided, like, yeah, the only one that was chided was the one who didn't do anything with what he was given to steward. Right, the, the one who had 10 talents made another 10. The one who had five talents made another five. And, and God didn't tell the t- five talent guy, man, why didn't you make 10? <laughs> He didn't tell the ten-talent person, why didn't you quadruple my money instead of only double my money? Because that's not the point. The point is, did you do something with it? And so the one who had one talent, he did nothing with it, and that's why he was rebuked. And so we are to take the, the opportunities that God has given to us, the conflicts that we find ourselves in, and focus on how can I faithfully steward this situation to the glory of God. So those are the opportunities, those are the ways that we should be thinking about conflict. Now remember, number four there, remember the ABC of conflict. Adversity builds character. Adversity builds character. James 1 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. So again, when we're faced with a conflict, it is an opportunity to be matured in our character, uh, to be growing uh, in sanctification uh, so that we would be lacking in nothing. So questions that you can ask, we'll talk more about these in, in future sessions, but questions you can ask in the midst of conflict How have I contributed to this conflict by wrong thinking, speaking, acting, or not acting? If you find yourself in a conflict this week, you can just ask yourself after the fact, how how did I contribute to this? Uh, You should ask yourself, how can I please and honor the Lord in this conflict? If you find yourself in a little spat with your spouse and you have a moment of cooling off, Uh, In that moment of cooling off, be thinking to yourself, how can I honor the Lord in this moment, in this situation? What can I do? And then also, how can I be a witness of what Christ has done for me? If Christ has left his infinite glory in heaven and come to this earth to take it upon himself, a human nature and a human body for the sake of reconciling us to himself, dying on the cross for our sin, how can I die to myself as a reflection of what Christ has done for me? How can I reflect to others 
who my God is in my response to conflict. All right. Well, though, that's the notes for this week. Any particular, uh, I know I just ran through those real quick, but any particular comments or, okay. Yes, Ayo. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that are the children watching what's yep. happening, mm-hmm. how do I glorify mm-hmm. God, you know. So practically, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how do I quickly extract myself like you see in movies? <laughs> I I'm like, oh, what am I doing here, you know? Because that's time I just food, I just want to, yeah. you know, and yeah. it goes back and forth, I'm yeah. not just thinking about anything yeah. but that situation. How yeah. do you practically manage it so that yeah. you don't seem... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think teaching this class about four years in a row really helps. So if you could no. Um first of all, I just want to say I completely understand that reality and I think we all have lived it. But I also want to say it doesn't have to be our reality. We can, by the power of the Spirit, learn to uh, change our thinking or focus our thinking even in the midst of the heat of the battle on those godly thoughts. But how do you get from here to there? <laughs> well, it starts by memorizing those three opportunities, maybe posting them somewhere, uh, teaching them to your kids, uh, just finding ways to have them in your mind, meditating on them. You know, maybe reading a book uh, or five books. <laughs> just Get it in there, right? And that's what we should do with all biblical truth, right? Be listening, meditating, chewing on it, teaching it, speaking it, praying it. As we do those things, uh, the Spirit will help us cultivate it more and more. So when I'm counseling a a couple who's often arguing, I'm not looking for, hey, this week, you know, you guys just cussed each other out, and this week you're both, you know, oh, let's pray. Um... I'm looking for progress, just development over time. Oh, you, you know, before you wouldn't talk to each other for five days after a conflict. This week, it was only two days that you didn't talk. Praise the Lord, <laughs> you know. Uh, and then one day, and then 30 minutes, you know. And so I think, we, you know, we need to recognize because of our uh, sinful condition that it's, it's going to take time for us to grow. But we do need to put intentional effort in meditating on the truth, taking in the truth, and being purposeful in living it out, even if it's not as uh, as a complete living it out as we would want it to be. But, you know, we'll get there eventually. So, like, one of the assignments I often give is if once, once you've had a conflict, you know, either after the conflict is over or at the end of the day or whatever, I'll tell someone to journal, uh, just simply answering a couple questions. You know, what happened? What did I do? What was the conflict about? What was I wanting? Uh, how did I respond? And if I find myself in that situation again, how can I respond differently? 
And just simply asking that question, how can I respond differently next time, and actually thinking about it, you know, if you find yourselves in conflict regularly, you're going to have another opportunity. And so thinking in advance is part of how the Spirit helps us to, to learn how to respond differently in the future in a similar situation. Uh, you know, it's the old saying goes, uh, if you uh, fail to plan, you plan to fail, right? It's just that idea that as we're thinking, okay, you know, Lord, I, I blew it this time, but okay, next time, here's how I can respond differently. I think the Spirit will help you over time to, to respond differently. So we have to be patient with ourselves. We had to recognize that God is forgiving and gracious and merciful. Uh, he knows we're not perfect, but he does expect us to be growing, and so he can do that progressively. Thank you. Okay, well, let me pray.